trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, hello there, and welcome to the show. I appreciate you joining me today and want to welcome you on behalf of my sponsors for The Brian Hyde Show. They include... Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, and Rio del Sion Home Lots. Just go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. And, and I'm going to ask a small favor, even as we begin here. Um, if you have feedback for me, I want to hear from you. I really do. Uh, the best shot you are going to have at giving me your feedback is uh, to go to my show notes. Go to my website, and you'll find a plenty of opportunity to comment there. Um, there are other sites and other places where you can access the show. Um, sometimes spammers make things bad for all of us. And apparently, you know, the, the comment features have had to be disabled on some of these sites because of uh, continued spam attacks. That doesn't mean you're going to get attacked. It just means that uh, the site moderators are dealing with a lot of uh, a lot of spammy comments. And so if you wish to reach me, the surest, best way to do it, go to the com. comment on my daily show notes. That's the best shot. Now, having said that, just to give you a little uh, inkling, what is this show all about? Maybe you're somebody tuning in for the first time. On a dare, somebody said, you ought to check out this guy and see what he's all about. Found a couple of tweets over the weekend. In fact, I, I'm, I'm seriously considering starting a, a little segment called Twitter Wisdom, just because you're limited in how many characters you can, can write it out in, so it's got to be succinct. You've got to be able to say what you're going to say. And these are just a couple of gems that I have come across in the last couple of days. First one was uh, late last week. This is from T.K. Coleman from uh, the Foundation for Economic Education and uh, his Revolution of One. He says, your first thought each day should not be about a politician. The first thing on your mind should be your potential and what you intend to do about it. Now, the context in which he is making this statement is when you let headlines dictate the direction of your attention, you compromise your power. So if you want to be in control of your life, be in control of your mind. And this is this is made all the more real to me in that uh, there, there are people who I dearly love and enjoy talking with. But sometimes it becomes very um, it, it becomes a very careful and delicate conversation because I know that they are getting a majority of their worldview from headlines from mass media, from mainstream media sources. And, and by the way, I'm not putting them down saying they're stupid and they're misled. I'm just saying that what they, what's informing their worldview makes them more susceptible to fear or anger over issues that, that may or may not even have any bearing on our day-to-day lives. So if you want to be one of those people who isn't getting your strings yanked, on a regular basis, this is really powerful advice. If you want to be in control of your life, be in control of your mind. And this is very much where I'm coming from. I don't want people to just agree with me. 
I mean, it's nice when people do, but it's even nicer when people come to knowledge, you know, with their of their own free choice. And don't agree with me just because, you know, because I have a twinkle in my eye or because, you know, well, we know you, Brian, and we, we like you. That's all fine and dandy, but it's your mind and you've got to take ownership. And it has never, in my opinion, it's never been more important than right now when there is just so much misinformation and narrative out there that's that's directed at keeping you shoehorned within a very narrow school of thought to, to keep you with a, an ideological tunnel vision that keeps you perpetually fearful, angry, suspicious of people who don't think just like you. Here's the other thing. This is this one. Uh, Lydia Cap shared this uh, earlier today, and, and this is one of the wisest things that I have read in a long time. She says, instead of being doggedly committed to proving other people wrong, which may accomplish nothing if someone doesn't give a crap what you think, she says, let's be doggedly committed to pursuing and living what is true with tact and compassion. That attitude makes truth infectious. Can you see the difference? Can you see what a life-changing difference there is in those two different approaches? And, and look, I have to confess, I have been so guilty of that first approach so many times. Well, I'm here to prove you wrong, whether it's, you know, some argument on social media, whether it was on my show, in, my, in the columns that I wrote. You know, I'm here to prove you wrong. And, and, you know, there are people who find great purpose in this. In fact, I've got, I've got a lot of friends in talk radio. This is what, the, this is what they do. I'm here to show you that you are wrong and you're stupid if you don't agree with me. That's not my attitude. I think there are some things that we should examine. I think there are truths that need to be defended. But more than anything, I'm going to live that truth. I'm going to pursue that truth. I'm going to speak that truth with love. I'm going to speak it with tact and compassion. And what you do with it is up to you. So I hope that's I hope that's clear enough. I make no claim to be right on everything because I already know I'm not. But I'm sincerely striving to understand and to 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 be faithful to the truth as I best understand it, while at the same time being open to new truth that could further enlarge my understanding. So with that in mind, let's jump right in. We've got some great stuff to share here, you know, sorting truth from error isn't getting easier. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we have a blizzard of information, some of it good, many, many facets of it not good, coming at us 24-7. I've really appreciated Paul Rosenberg's excellent series on common logical fallacies. I think it's one of the most valuable tools for building your thinking skills. And he's up to fallacy number 14. You can find all of them at uh, freemansperspective.com. I have a link to the latest one in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is the appeal to diversions. And you don't have to be arguing for a living. You don't, it's not like, well, I'm setting forth to go set everybody straight. It's just when you see the opportunity to share a truth or to stand up for the truth, it helps to recognize the fallacies that others will use to try to keep you from speaking the truth or try to dissuade you that, nah, you know, what you know really isn't so. Sometimes it's very obvious and sometimes it's a little more subtle. Uh, there can be some sophistry at play here. But this is the appeal to diversions. Paul Rosenberg says, as we did last time, 
will combine several formal fallacies in this installment. And he says, I'm doing this because I think the application of these fallacies has more practical importance than their logical derivations. That is, all fallacies are applied by real humans against real humans. So I want to make that the primary focus and not the formal, almost mathematic explanations. He says, I have nothing against the formal renderings of these things. In fact, I find them necessary. But for application in actual human affairs, usage is more central than analytics. So he says, I'm calling today's fallacy the appeal to diversions. And we can include many formal fallacies under this description. But these are the primary types. Appeal to consequences. Your argument is false because it will result in X, Y, Z. There's appeal to widespread belief. Everyone knows that is false or true. Appeal to ignorance. You can't prove this is false, so stop arguing. Bulverism. You suffer from oppositional disorder. That's why you came to such a bad conclusion. How about appeal to worse problems? If you think it's bad here, go see how you like it in North Korea. And then playing the servant. How can you accuse me of that? I'm working for the very highest ideals. Paul Rosenberg says the fundamental operation of these fallacies are actually the same. All of them are distractions from the truth, and their purpose is to divert us from a direct examination of a claim. So looked at calmly, it's obvious that these arguments are frauds, all of them. Their very purpose is to eliminate critique, which wouldn't be necessary for solid beliefs. And so by making such an argument, the speaker's condemning his or her own claim. How the trick works? Well, Paul Rosenberg says the first thing to understand about this trick is that its goal is not precisely to win the argument. It's just to make contrary opinion go away. After that, the win is implied. He made his ridiculous case and we shut him down. Now, what makes these arguments work, of course, is emotional pressure. Imagine a lone male standing in a group of females airing an opinion and being told angrily, of course a man would say that. Or a young woman with no college degree, airing a contrary opinion to a group of professors and being told, you're criticizing someone far better than yourself. Paul Rosenberg says that kind of pressure turns the holder of another opinion into a heretic and chases them away. Said another way, he says this trick works when emotional pressure overcomes truth, making it less compelling than the emotions being thrown at you. And once you're emotionally centered on the dark scenarios spun with this fallacy, defensiveness comes easy and the diversion will likely accomplish its purpose. Now, there's more to this. We'll come back to it in a few moments. As I mentioned before, there's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check it out for yourself. If you find it worthwhile, check out the entire series of essays on these fallacies. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. If you have commercial insurance, you already know. It gets complicated quickly. So if among the many hats you wear, insurance expert or commercial insurance expert is not one of them, take heart. My friends at uh, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance are there to help you. There's a very handy link in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on it. It'll take you right to them, and uh, you'll know you're in good hands. Tell them thanks for sponsoring the show. 
I'm sharing with you an article here from Paul Rosenberg. This is about the appeal to diversions, which is actually a composite of several different logical fallacies. And he says, we've noted several times that humans have a weakness for conformity. So when people use these fallacies against you, they're likely playing the room against you. That is, they'll make you feel like everybody in the room opposes you. Alternately, they may conjure images of an audience leading you to imagine them all listening or observing, or they may want you to fear the audience they'll recount the conversation to. So he walks through each of these different fallacies that make up the appeal to diversions. And this is, he says, this is what the victim of this trick will feel in all six of the variations we started with. So if someone tells you, well, your argument is false because it will result in X, Y, Z, you're being cast as a destructive, injurious person. Rather than defending the truth of your opinion, you'll be pushed into a defense, not of your opinion, but of yourself. No, I'm not saying that children should be deprived of good nutrition. And after that, it's difficult to get back to an actual examination of facts. But the whole goal there is to put you on the defensive. How about this one? Everyone knows that is false. Here, Paul Rosenberg says you're not only holding a different opinion, but actively calling everyone else stupid, which people deeply resent for some reason. (laughs) Your opponent will try to make you imagine large numbers of offended people all centering their anger upon you. Or when someone says you can't prove this is false, can you? You're being made to feel stupid that you were unprepared to make such a statement and were arrogant to try Now, he says, remember, a thing being false and being able to prove it false are two very different things. Sometimes proof requires million-dollar machines. How about this one? You suffer from an oppositional disorder. That's why you came to such a terrible conclusion. You're being made to feel defective. If you think it's bad here, go see how you like it in North Korea. You're being made to feel ungrateful and that you're blowing things out of proportion. Or when someone says, how can you accuse me of that? I'm working for the very highest ideals. You're being made to feel unappreciative, acting presumptuously, acting above your station. And Paul Rosenberg says in all of these cases, focus is being turned upon you and away from the validity of your claims. And so the trick works because it applies pressure, pressure directly to your weaknesses. He says humans are vulnerable to status, conformity and fear. And in all the cases above and many others like them, these vulnerabilities are being attacked and these attacks are weapons no less so than swords. Now, he says the first thing to do is to keep in mind that uh, you, you notice that bad feeling that's being thrust upon you. Recognize that something is wrong and then realize that this feeling came from the other party and it's being used as a weapon. As with emotional attacks or other emotional attacks, he says, you're just going to have to absorb the blow. Again, he says, I wish I had a better suggestion for you, but I don't. Take the pain and remember that it's a blow from a bully and nothing more. Such emotional strikes usually recede fairly quickly. So to absorb the blow, he says, then remember our go-to line. Wait, I want to understand what you're saying here. Are you saying that my point doesn't matter because you think whatever it is they just accused you of? At this point, you should be feeling a bit better and able to expose the attack for what it was. So here are responses based upon those six examples. Well, your argument is false because it will result in X, Y, Z. First of all, you haven't shown that X, Y, Z is inevitable. Secondly, you haven't shown that my opinion would lead to X, Y, Z. I think you can't refute what I said and are trying to escape it by attacking me personally. That's a pretty bold call out. But that's that's exactly what's happening. Or when someone says everyone knows that's false. 
You can respond, everyone doesn't know that's false. I know plenty of people who think it's true. But more than that, everyone once believed that the sun went around the earth. So what everyone believes is no standard at all. I think you're trying to slash at me because you can't refute my argument. Or when someone says you can't prove this is false, can you? There are hundreds of things I can't prove that are likely true. We're all in that situation. Honest people don't try to sweep away arguments with unfair and overly broad statements. Do you have anything else? Maybe something that doesn't reek of a personal attack? Or if someone says you suffer from an oppositional disorder, that's why you come to such a terrible conclusion. So that's your argument? Ignore the facts and call the other person insane? How very convenient for you. Is that what your profession teaches to escape losing arguments by calling people crazy? That's a pretty good smackdown, by the way. I would use that one, you know, sparingly. How about this? If you think it's bad here, go see how you like it in North Korea. You can respond, I'm not talking about North Korea. I'm talking about here. I think you're holding to North Korea because you can face the truth. You can't face the truth about what's happening here. And when someone says, how can you accuse me of that? I am working for the very highest ideals. You can tell them self-praise doesn't make anyone right. Either you have facts or you don't. And proclaiming your untouchable ideals makes me think that you don't have facts. Now, he says, if the conversation turns contentious, but not actually dangerous, I recommend saying something like, I don't think you want your opinion examined. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to launch such an attack. Then turning and walking away. Now, if the if the situation could become dangerous, he says, please walk away after the first attack. Turn, step and leave quietly. You're dealing with barbarians and probably shouldn't have come in the first place. This is pretty direct stuff, but I think there is truth in everything that he has recommended here. And I think that the, the particularly the recommended responses spoken with love can stop someone who is just going on a, you know, a guerrilla style domination attack, you know, trying to or, or someone trying to use sophistry to shut you down. I do like Paul's approach about losing the need to win, speak the truth with love, take the hits if that's what's coming, and just keep on smiling. But I also agree with him that there comes a time where if someone is just determined, they just want to argue, I'm just here to argue with you, sometimes the best thing to do is just to say, you know what, this doesn't feel like a discussion so much as an argument. And I don't have time to waste your time or mine arguing. Since neither one of us are, you know, are likely to change our minds. And, and walk away. And that means walk away. Don't keep arguing as you're backing away and, you know, being stopped. Just turn and go. Okay, take it for what it's worth. Maybe you're the kind of person who doesn't even need to argue. Maybe you just have a winning smile and you can <laughs> you can you can just disarm people with with a with a quick smile and, you know, a, a soft word. Whatever works. I do think that uh, as we defend those things that need defended, those uh, ideals, those truths that are that are in danger. We have a duty to do so without bringing more anger to the situation, and that's hard because emotions are running high. I mean, I I have seen some of the most hysterical accusations, and this is primarily coming out of Washington, D.C. here of late. And it's it's the, the elite. It's this is the, the high and mighty members of the political class that, that really seem to be engaging in this. In fact, when we come back from the break here in a minute, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about what about ism. 
I have seen this pop up all over social media, but I also see it a lot in in the language of the uh, political class. And nowhere have we seen this more than in the uh, president's second, the former president's second trial uh, imp- impeachment trial in Washington, D.C., you know, of course, they did uh, vote to acquit over the weekend. And there are those who think that this is just a terrible waste of time and effort and taxpayer dollars. And on one level, I would agree with them. But I also think it's been a great showcase for the official hypocrisy of the political class. I've got a great article here from David Marcus, which explains how when people accuse you of whataboutism, there's a pretty strong chance that they are just struggling to come up with something, anything with which they can refute you. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about what it means to be an educated person. And the answer might surprise you because it has very little to do with credentials. And a lot more to do with a person who is just determined to own their mind. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, my great sponsors include uh, Monticello College, and there is a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com that I would really encourage you to, to click, even if it's just out of curiosity. Monticello College is located down in the uh, Four Corners area of the great state of Utah, and it is uh, to say it is in a beautiful location is, is a vast understatement, like saying it's a little chilly in Texas right now. <laughs> it's really cold in Texas right now. Anyway, I would encourage you to check it out. You want to know what the value of a good, solid liberal arts education is? Uh, this is a place where you can learn about it, uh, where you can, uh, you know, it may be for you, maybe for your kids, your grandkids. Anyway, it's uh, MonticelloCollege.org or just click on the link in the show notes for, uh, for uh, February 15th at com. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about uh, what it means to be an educated person coming up in the next segment. But before I get there, I want to talk about what about ism. You heard this term before? I think most of us have encountered it somewhat. And, and it usually comes down to something like this. Um, whatever one political party is doing, and, and please understand, both of them are doing egregious, intensely wrong and immoral things. Both of the major political parties. It's just this is the nature of power. They're different wings of the same bird of prey. But when you start to criticize one, and well, you know, all of our troubles are all the product of President Trump. He was the one who did this. Or conversely, you know, it's all Biden's fault or it's all Nancy Pelosi's fault. Almost invariably, someone who is on the opposite side is going to say, well, what about the time when Kamala Harris did this or the time when Trump did that? David Marcus, writing for TheFederalist.com, says when someone accuses you of whataboutism, you can be pretty certain that you are right and they can't refute it. Now, that sounds like a pretty cocksure way of approaching this, but I want you to hear his explanation. He says, whataboutism is all the rage, and it reminds us to be very careful with words one suddenly sees all over the place, ones that were scarcely uttered just a few years ago. Whataboutism being one of those words. The reason for the surge in its use is that opponents of Donald Trump, especially those on the right, Evan McMullen, I'm looking your way. Mitt Romney, 
You paying attention here? Who use whataboutism the most need to defend the ridiculous double standards applied to Trump's actions and those of the left. He says the term has reached a fever pitch during the second impeachment of Trump, and there's obvious hypocrisy at work comparing the single riot at the Capitol on January 6th and the summer of violence the nation endured last year. Now, he says for progressives, this is easy. They think the violent protests of 2020 were fine. And by the way, just as an aside, Trump's lawyers, his defense team in this second trial, used their own words, the Democrats' own words, to great effect. They had to sit there and have their noses rubbed in their own words for the better part of an hour. As over and over, they challenged the 2016 election. That election was absolutely tampered with and it was fraudulent and it wasn't real. And, and you know, and we got to fight and we've got there will be blood in the streets and we need to be in these protests and get up and fight. You know, the very words that they are saying, you know, the, the very dynamic that they say drove this insurrection, as they call it, at the Capitol could very well have been applied to them. And they just had to sit there and take it. I imagine that was pretty uncomfortable. Maybe maybe it was a little bit cathartic for people watching, but yikes. So you've heard a lot about this. Now, the author of this article, David uh, Marcus, says the term has reached a fever pitch. And he says this is really tough for anti-Trump conservatives who don't support Vice President Kamala Harris helping to bail out rioting arsonists, and they know if Trump had done anything like that, he would have been crucified for it when Harris clearly wasn't. So to get themselves out of this dilemma, they appeal to whataboutism. And it's an idea that has its roots in the Soviet Union, which would use it to deflect from its own, its own horrible actions by pointing to bad actions done by the United States. It's a version of the Tukok uh, logical fallacy, but with a big difference, because in the latter, a personal failing of the person making the accusation is appealed to, not an apples-to-apples or- apples comparison of events with similar contexts. So comparing the way this summer's riots were dealt with and how the Capitol riot is being dealt with is not a fallacy. This is how logic works in every aspect of our lives, from law to science to medicine to child rearing and relationships. We compare similar past situations when making a current choice. It's literally the most basic element of reason. We don't completely reinvent the wheel every time we're faced with a choice or dilemma. First of all, it's vital to understand that nobody, absolutely nobody, who doesn't require mental help, prison, or both, defends the Capitol riot. So whataboutism doesn't really apply here in terms of defending the actions, even though many on the left did defend violent elements of the summer riots, especially concerning property damage. What conservatives are objecting to is the double standard in legal, political, and media reaction. The riots this summer were a nuanced affair to the media and across the country, remember, mostly peaceful, as progressive district attorneys refused to prosecute rioters. Prior to Trump's order punishing the destruction of statues and monuments, there were few prosecutions for such brazen actions. Social media companies did not punish or censor those who supported the riots of the summer. Now compare this to the reaction to the Capitol riots. There's no nuance at all. It occasioned an absurd impeachment. Social media companies used it to not only ban users, but along with their tech giant buddies, to destroy their competitor, Parler, and chill political speech. The Biden administration is eyeing domestic terrorist laws to broaden their ability to surveil and punish conservative speech. 
Those are the issues that conservatives have have with the wildly different ways the summer riots were dealt with, despite being far more deadly, far more costly, and just as much of an attack on government than the single Capitol Hill riot was. It's blatant hypocrisy, says David Marcus. Anti-Trump conservatives know very well that it is blatant hypocrisy, so they invoke a nonsense word to defend their decision to simply not address the problem. It's indicative of the problem they now have with the implosion of the Lincoln Project, which is almost an avatar of their influence turning to dust. It's as if some Trumpian Thanos just snapped his fingers. If they cannot bring themselves to criticize this hypocrisy... They're just no longer needed lackeys for the Democrats, and they're being rightfully kicked to the curb. Anytime someone invokes a magic word that they claim precludes them from engaging in a conversation, because engaging would be irresponsible, you can be sure that they simply can't defend their position. That's exactly what's happening here. They don't want to have the conversation because they can't. So they mutter, what about ism, and pretend to hold some faux moral high ground. We all see it. We all know it's nonsense. And we should all call it out for the cowardice it is every time it's invoked. David Marcus says the United States faces great threats today from China to Iran to the rise of critical race theories, frightening racism. But none is as scary as the chilling of speech we see across schools, corporations and leftist media. Whataboutism is part of these illiberal anti-free speech tendencies. Never let it shut you down. In fact, when someone accuses you of whataboutism, simply take it for almost certain evidence that what you are saying is true and they cannot refute it. Again, I'll have a link to this in the show notes at the com. There was a similar article that I picked up this weekend on Intellectual Takeout about how reason can't prevail against an irrational opposition. And there was a story that was shared in there that I think bears mentioning once again. Um, Look, you and I probably have the best of intentions, right? We just want to help people see that there's there's another way of looking at this and perhaps a better way that's more uh, conducive to personal freedom and free markets and freedom of conscience and private property rights. That's all we're trying to do. It's kind of painful to think that those uh, those uh, ideals and any appeal to those ideals could be wasted on the irrationality that is you know, this this political animus. In this article by Kenneth Lefebvre, he talks about Aristotle, arguably the touchstone of Western reason, had as his most famous student Alexander the Great, the era's most renowned conqueror. Alexander spent a year studying one-on-one with the founder of logic, metaphysics, and virtue ethics. He learned what it means to reason and to think his way out of problems, a skill he used in a series of battles that subdued the known world in just a few years. At one juncture in his context, in his conquests, rather, Alexander encountered mystical priests of a foreign culture who presented him with the Gordian Knot, an intricately tied pile of rope that was considered impossible to untie. The priest expected Alexander to attempt to untie it, but this student of logic's founder was not easily fooled. Instead, he took out his sword and cut the knot in two. The lesson here is reason cannot untie the tangle of irrationality. It can only destroy it. And by the way, the author here says, let me be clear. The sword that I'm referring to is a figurative one of boycotts, strikes, protests, because I'm not inciting violence. But he says we've we've got to make action a part of what we're doing, not just talk. If you want to make headway against what's clearly a rising tide of totalitarianism. By the way, nowhere is that being felt more than in the arena of free speech. 
So let's enjoy this freedom to converse while we still can. Actually, I intend to enjoy it even when we're not supposed to. Because that's just how I roll. And we'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Our program is brought to you in part today by Rio Del Sion Home Lots. These are just outside of Virgin, Utah. And they are right along the Virgin River, just outside of Zion National Park. If you are considering a move to Utah, particularly southern Utah, and thinking, yeah, when we get there, we're going to build a home, this is something you should really strongly consider. It, you won't find a more beautiful place in, in one of the most beautiful areas of the entire nation. It is it's simply breathtaking. Click on the link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, and you can get all the information you need. That's Rio Del Sion Home Lots. And yes, tell them thank you for being a sponsor of the show. All right, I got about three quick articles that I want to touch on here in the few moments that we have left. Uh, I want to talk about what it means to be an educated person. This is from Josh Kaufman. And I love this because he compares a number of different, uh, different people and even institutions' criteria of what must an educated person know. And he starts with an essay from John Taylor Gatto a renowned education historian and critic of modern industrial schooling. His essay was titled The Curriculum of Necessity or What Must an Educated Person Know? Now, here's what the essay, here's how it begins. It says, a few years back, one of the schools at Harvard, perhaps the School of Government, issued some advice to its students on planning a career in the new international economy it believed was arriving. It warned sharply that academic classes and professional credentials would count for less and less when measured against real-world training. Ten qualities were offered as essential to successfully adapting to the rapidly changing world of work. See how many of those you think are regularly taught in the schools of your city or state. So here's Harvard University's list of skills that make an educated person. The ability to define problems without a guide. The ability to ask hard questions which challenge prevailing assumptions. The ability to quickly assimilate needed data from masses of irrelevant information. The ability to work in teams without guidance. The ability to work absolutely alone. The ability to persuade others that your course is the right one. The ability to conceptualize and recognize information and reorganize rather information into new patterns. The ability to discuss ideas with an eye toward application. The ability to think inductively, deductively, and dialectically. You might want to look up all those words if, if you want to see what they all mean. And finally, the ability to attack problems heuristically. And again, I'm going to encourage you, look those things up. I would take the time to explain, but I'm pressed for time here. After listing those skills, John Gatto Taylor continued, or John Taylor Gatto said, you might be able to come up with a better list than Harvard did without surrendering any of these fundamental ideas. And yet he says, from where I sit, and I sat around schools for nearly 30 years, I don't think we teach any of these things as a matter of school policy. None of the schools I ever worked for were able to provide any important parts of this vital curriculum for children. All the schools I worked for taught nonsense up front and under the table. They taught people how to be young people, how to be dumb, how to be slavish, how to be frightened and how to be dependent. 
So Josh Kaufman drafted a list of this uh, in his own in his own uh, essay. Do you have these core human skills? And these are his his skills that he listed that that he felt to a, a basic good person should have these skills. Information assimilation, how to find, consume and comprehend information and identify what's most important in the face of a problem or challenge. Writing, how to communicate thoughts and ideas in written form clearly and concisely. Speaking, how to communicate thoughts and ideas to others clearly, concisely and with confidence. Mathematics, how to accurately use concepts from arithmetic, algebra, geometry, calculus and statistics to analyze and solve common problems. Decision-making, how to identify critical issues, prioritize, focus energy and effort, recognize fallacies, avoid common errors, and handle ambiguity. Rapport, how to interact with other people in a way that encourages them to like, trust, and respect you. Conflict resolution, how to anticipate potential sources of conflict and resolve disagreements when they occur. Scenario generation, how to create, clarify, evaluate, and communicate a possible future scenario that assists in decision-making, either for yourself or for another person. He includes other things like planning, self-awareness, interrelations, skill acquisition. And that led him, that the research led him to another group of lists of what an educated person must know. This is from one of my old mentors, Oliver DeMille. A Thomas Jefferson education included Harvard's list in addition to two others. Uh, here's Princeton University's list of skills that make an educated person. The ability to think, speak, and write clearly. The ability to reason critically and systematically. The ability to conceptualize and solve problems. The ability to think independently. The ability to take initiative and work independently. The ability to work in cooperation with others and learn collaboratively. The ability to judge what it means to understand something thoroughly. The ability to distinguish the important from the trivial, the enduring from the ephemeral. Familiarity with the different modes of thought, including quantitative, historical, scientific, and aesthetic. Depth of knowledge in a particular field. The ability to see connections among disciplines, ideas, and cultures. I love this last one. The ability to pursue lifelong learning. And here is George with University's list of skills that make an educated person. The ability to understand human nature and lead accordingly. The ability to identify needed personal traits and turn them into habits. The ability to establish, maintain, and improve lasting relationships. The ability to keep one's life in proper balance. The ability to discern truth and error regardless of the source or the delivery. The ability to discern true from right. The ability and discipline to do right and the ability and discipline to constantly improve. And these are the four major lessons that uh, Josh Kaufman pulls from this. There's a very uh, remarkably strong effort and consensus from independent sources inside and outside of academia about what it means to be an educated person. So an educated person is one equipped to deal with most common life situations. Skills related to these are the skills that will be most useful throughout the course of life. Also, education is an ongoing process that is not synonymous with credentialing. Credentialing programs almost universally skip teaching these fuzzy skills in favor of other skills that can be assessed more easily. Education doesn't end when schooling ends. And the true test of these skills is how an individual responds in situations that call for them. Also, existing schooling and credentialing processes have little to no overlap 
with these major areas and may actually be counterproductive, either by overcomplicating the theory related to these skills or consuming time and attention in teaching areas unrelated to these skills. Current trends in credentialing are leading to less overlap in these areas over time, not more. Now, he says, if you intend to improve in each of these areas, you must invest time, energy, and resources learning these skills on your own. Investment in learning skills related to these areas is most likely to pay dividends in real-world situations, either in money or overall life satisfaction. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Please, take a close look at it and see if it's something that could apply to your life. You don't have to be a brainiac. You don't have to be, you know, able to recount everything, you know, historically that ever happened. You just have to be willing to learn and keep learning as long as as you can. All right. One final essay that, uh, that I am going to link. And this is actually, this is a speech that was given by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, an acceptance address when he was receiving the Templeton prize back in 1983, May 10th of 1983. He talked about how over half a century ago, when he was a child, remember this is 1983 when he's talking, he says, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. And he says, since then, I've spent uh, well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, he says, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. Now, there is a lot of meat on this bone, but I would strongly encourage you to take a look at it. Find the time. One of the passages in this speech that really jumped out at me was he said, Our life consists not in the pursuit of material success, but in the quest of worthy spiritual growth. Our entire earthly existence is but a transitional stage in the movement towards something higher. And we must not stumble and fall, nor must we linger fruitlessly on one rung of the ladder. Material laws alone do not explain our life or give it direction. The laws of physics and physiology will never reveal the indisputable manner in which the Creator constantly, day in and day out, participates in the life of each of us, unfailingly granting us the energy of existence. When this assistance leaves us, we die. In the life of our entire planet, he says, the divine spirit moves with no less force. This we must grasp in our dark and terrible hour. If you have found yourself feeling discouraged... And I suggest that uh, Solzhenitsyn has some of the balm that you and I need to strengthen our hearts and soothe our troubled souls. It'd be worth checking it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show.